Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Crawl Newman. We are your co-hosts, Jason Crawford and Mono Lombardo, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. Today's episode focuses on the role played by Agency Inspectors General, or IGs, in False Claims Act investigations. Our guest today is Adam Kaplan, Senior Counsel in the Office of the Inspector General at the United States Agency for International Development, USAID. In this role, Adam works closely with agents in assessing criminal, civil, and administrative remedies related to USAID programming. In his prior position as counsel at the Office of the Inspector General at the Small Business Administration, Adam provided critical legal support to federal agents and the Department of Justice on False Claims Act cases asserting fraud and obtaining government-wide small business set-aside contracts. And for his work on the largest False Claims Act recovery in a case involving small business fraud, Adam was awarded a SIGI award. That's the Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. And so having worked on scores of investigations over the past decade, Adam is well positioned to discuss the important work that IGs do on False Claims Act cases. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Great to be here. Thanks, Jason and Mana. I just want to give the standard disclaimer that as I'll be here speaking about my experience over the course of working with two separate agency IGs, I am speaking in my personal capacity. Well, thanks for the disclaimer, Adam, and it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks. So in the aftermath of the Watergate scandal, Congress enacted the Inspector General Act of 1978 to strengthen the executive branch's ability to deal with fraud, waste, and abuse. And they did so by establishing offices of Inspector General with federal agencies. Then, when President Jimmy Carter signed the IG Act, he described the new IGs as perhaps the most important new tools in the fight against fraud. So, this focus on fraud, waste, and abuse, along with the power to subpoena information and documents, it's probably no surprise that IGs have come to occupy such an important role in the FCA landscape. Adam, do you want to set the stage for us a bit here by describing for the listening audience the various ways in which IGs can become involved in an FCA investigation? Sure. So there are two general ways. One is, you know, under the False Claims Act, one is a key TAM, and the second is an, an affirmative uh, civil referral that an IG office will submit to a U.S. attorney's office. So with respect to key TAMs, and I'd say eight to 10 a year were filed when I was with SBA, four to five perhaps with USAID, a local U.S. attorney's office will reach out to the relevant agency inspector general's office and essentially form a prosecution team to assess ultimately whether to intervene in a key team or, or decline intervention. And that U.S. Attorney's Office will rely heavily on OIGs to provide expertise and experience in investigating similar allegations related to that specific agency. So if you think an AUSA is going to be handling cases from all across government agencies, healthcare fraud, DOD fraud, SBA fraud. So there will be a large degree of reliance both on assessing investigative steps and assessing the strength of a case as a whole. And OIG agents, of course, assist with the investigation and OIG attorneys can assist in strategy and provide institutional knowledge of how these cases can or can't be successful. The second method is affirmative civil cases. So for any allegations that OIG receives, we consider all criminal, civil, and administrative remedies and assess allegations for each. So when it comes to maybe a, a civil fraud referral being the best possible remedy, we will then 
pitched the uh, case to a U.S. attorney's office. And because that AUSA is not required to make a decision on whether or not to file suit as would be done for a KETAM, there's some more time to discuss and provide additional information that comes as a result of an IG investigation before, quote, going to DOJ with the actual pitch. And these affirmative referrals, they come from many avenues. It could be a referral from an agency official to OIG, or perhaps more likely a disclosure to an OIG hotline under the mandatory disclosure provisions related to awards, either contracts or grants. Or sometimes it could just be a hotline complainant who has chosen not to file a KETAM, is just submitting a complaint straight to the IG hotline, taking it out of the KETAM process and deadlines associated with that. Thanks, Adam. So our audience is mostly familiar with the KETAM process, but may have less familiarity with the mechanics of what an IG office will do after a KETAM has been filed. Can you speak some more to that? Yeah, generally the complaint will come in from Department of Justice, civil frauds, and will be sent both to the agency as well as that agency's inspector general, depending on the allegations, alerting them of the KETAM, We'll get a copy of the complaint, a copy of the disclosure statement, and then we in OIG Legal generally will pass along the complaint to our investigations division, which will then assign an agent to be the case agent. So my practice is once the team is together, both IG attorneys and agents, and whether it's a joint investigation or just with our specific IG offices, to have an initial call with the AUSA and give a broad assessment of the allegations. So. Have we seen something like this before? What is the likelihood of success? What is the presumed agency's position on the matter? What legal issues do we have to shore up initially? And what is really our investigative capacity, such as issuing quick IG subpoenas or obtaining relevant contracting files from the agency? So I'll also say that if the case does involve multiple agencies, for example, USAID, state, and DOD, the team will be larger, and then we'll, we'll schedule an initial call on in the case, usually prior to a relator's interview. And in that discussion, we'll discuss the equities, really, that each IG has in the case, and what is the universe of awards at issue that we're talking about. So one other role that we play in civil frauds investigations is particularly at the settlement stage, and frequently IG counsel will sit alongside an AUSA across the table from defense counsel and engage in discussions over what a proper resolution of the case may be, and oftentimes we'll be stating our equities in the case and why a particular type of fraud matters and how it impacts an agency or other program beneficiaries within that agency, how that type of fraud has essentially harmed the government. So we'll be involved in those discussions, and oftentimes I'm pulled aside by defense counsel and they'll say, well, what about suspension debarment? Is OIG going to refer this matter for SDO, at which point we can open up a conversation and I can hear from them about certain measures that their client has taken to prevent the type of fraud from reoccurring. And at that point, I certainly have in the past recommended that an administrative agreement may be an appropriate remedy for an SDO to consider. Thanks, Adam. So as our listeners know, and as you've already alluded to, IGs are frequently working across agencies and receiving referrals from other federal, state, or local law enforcement offices as well. And in addition to referrals of specific individuals who may have committed fraud, 
IGs will work with other law enforcement agencies on task forces to share investigative information, essentially to identify fraud schemes. Can you tell us a little bit more about how IGs collaborate with other agencies on these investigations? For example, when does an IG determine that it should involve another agency? And how is that division of labor amongst agencies determined in a specific investigation? Yeah, these joint investigations, as we call them, they happen very frequently, and the determination is usually made at the outset of assessing the initial allegations. So we'll look at the issue and we'll look at the awards. And if we see, for example, that another IG, let's say state has made awards to the same potential defendant, then it's almost definite that state IG would also have an agent assigned to a case. And we look at the proportion of awards. That's an important factor. And if there's just one award, a minuscule award by one particular agency, then generally you wouldn't expect as much involvement from that IG's case agent. And for example, at SBA IG, where the False Claims Act cases revolved around violation of SBA's rules, but another agency's dollars, if you had $10 million worth of Army contracts, $6 million of Coast Guard contracts, and then one $13,000 award from EPA, we probably wouldn't expect too much from EPA IG in that case, but officially they're still part of the team. Okay, great to know. So it sounds like a little bit of a pro rata share of involvement based in part on contract value at issue. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it is based on relationships and law enforcement officers or agents, you know, move throughout the government and certain times they'll pull in an agent from another agency if there are certain equities that he or she may have in the case, and we know that we'll get some pretty positive engagement there. So it's very frequently, if there are words from multiple agencies, at least there will be that discussion as to who is going to join the team. Great. It's also our understanding that most IGs receive more investigative referrals than they could possibly investigate. Uh, Has that been your experience in the IG offices in which you've worked? And if so, how does the IG go about selecting which matters to investigate? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And every IG by statute has an OIG hotline, and there are complaints. Depending on the IG, there could be dozens, hundreds, or tens of thousands of complaints submitted each year, depending on the size of the agency. So if you just do the math, I mean, it's just impossible to investigate every single allegation there. But you know, with that being said, if it's not a key team in which an AUSA is going to rely on our agents, our attorneys to provide support, at least in assessing the complaint, IGs generally have a case priority matrix which factors in types of allegations that will immediately rise to high priority or priority one, depending on factors. We look at possible monetary loss. We look at who is involved. If it's an internal case, what's the level of an agency official in an internal case, and how the referral generally fits within an OIG's, what we call, it's a term of art, top management challenges. And that's the overall priorities that an IG office has set with respect to its oversight of the establishment agency. So all of those factors are combined together, and the assessment is always made on a case-by-case basis. One other piece is the mandatory nature of whistleblower retaliation investigations, which were allegations by employees of a federal contractor or a federal grantee that they have been retaliated against by their company for making a protected whistleblower disclosure related to an award. So in those cases, those investigations are mandatory. 
as set forth by statute in which IGs have to, within a certain time frame, make an assessment and actually submit a report to the head of the agency to consider possible corrective action. Thanks, Adam. So switching gears from how an IG's office goes about selecting where to investigate and turning to the tools at the agency's disposal. In a previous episode, we've talked about DOJ's authority to issue civil investigative demands or CIDs, but IGs also have broad authority to subpoena information within the agency's possession and that of third parties, such as contractors. And so when an IG and DOJ are working closely on investigating KETAM allegations, what's the thought process behind deciding which investigative tool will be used? It really depends on the IG office and it depends on the U.S. Attorney's office. Some IG offices, it might take several months to issue an OIG subpoena. And I've made it a goal at USAID IG, and this was also the case at SBA IG, that a subpoena request coming from an agent to IG legal be issued in about a week after the request from an agent comes in. So in those instances, an IG subpoena may be more appealing, particularly on the other hand, if obtaining approval for a CID is more onerous for a particular U.S. attorney's office. I'll also mention it in terms of awards, IGs also have the authority under the FAR and the OMB Supercircular to issue records requests to award recipients, which perhaps is a softer touch than a federal IG subpoena, particularly if in the grand context, for example, an awardee has been cooperative in the past. So various considerations go into play, and we also look at how a party may receive, not how it obtains, but how it actually may receive the particular request, whether in the form of a CID versus an IG subpoena, and the reaction upon receiving something coming from the Department of Justice versus an agency's Office of Inspector General. So if a decision's made to issue an IG subpoena, how closely will an IG attorney typically work with agents in drafting the request, and what's the process for evaluating the proper scope of the subpoena? So in terms of assisting agents, it really varies from IG to IG, but I'd say in general, IG lawyers are extremely active in the drafting of IG subpoenas, and in many cases, IG councils have direct delegation from the IG to sign and serve a subpoena. So my perspective is IG authority is very broad, and as long as I see a request that relates to the agency, which our IG is statutorily responsible under the Inspector General Act for overseeing, and other measures such as a voluntary production or a records request under the award terms are not appropriate, then we'll issue the subpoena. So I look at the scope of the request, and unless it's clearly unreasonable, like a request for emails dating back 25 years, then we'll issue it. Now, after issuance, I routinely hear back from defense counsel expressing, we'll say, concerns over scope or timing or privileges. And at that point, I absolutely welcome a dialogue where we can speak to issues which will make the subpoena production a little less painful for the recipient, including potentially having an initial production of certain categories of records, clawback agreements for inadvertent productions of attorney-client privilege materials, and an initial narrowing of scope where we can then go back to the uh, subpoena recipient and say, okay, we've looked at these initial documents now. Rather than issuing a second IG subpoena, we want additional production. 
Also, this would be the time to discuss deadlines or extensions and even from the recipient, an opportunity to, to tell their side of the story. So upon receiving the subpoena and looking at the categories of records that are being requested, generally a subpoena recipient may have an idea of perhaps what the investigation is about, and they always are welcome to early on address those allegations and present their version of events to us. Let me follow up a little bit on that last response. You talked about some of the ways it's appropriate to negotiate the scope or the protocol for responding to the subpoena. But aside from that, when IGs are interfacing with contractors who are responding to FCA issues via subpoena, what is the IG seeking in terms of cooperation from the contractor? Yeah, we're expecting cooperation. We're expecting that concerns be raised early on rather than the day before a subpoena is due. And again, we do welcome that dialogue. And at least on subpoenas that my office issues, you'll see my name and contact information on the cover letter of the subpoena. You'll see the agent's name and contact information within the actual subpoena. So we are available to address concerns. But what we won't tolerate is we can quote ghosting and just non-responsiveness to a law enforcement subpoena. And in those situations, we view as non-cooperation. And if it's extensive and goes on where we have to go to a U.S. attorney's office to enforce a validly issued IG subpoena, that is not going to play favorable with our office. In addition to obtaining documents for their investigations, agents will often seek to interview individuals outside the federal government. What's the protocol for seeking these interviews? So OIGs do not, other than Department of Defense IG, OIGs do not have testimonial subpoena authority under the IG Act. So any interviews will generally be voluntary. And if we're seeking to interview a former employee, we'll contact them directly and see if they wish to speak. Usually there's no obstacles there unless it's a former attorney for a company we're, we're investigating where some privileges may arise. For employee witness interviews, we generally do notify counsel, unless it's a complainant who first provides information independently as a whistleblower. And if we have subsequent conversations with that complainant, we may reach out to their counsel. But as I alluded to before, the anti-whistleblower retaliation statute precludes retaliation for an employee disclosing information to an OIG. So there is that balance there that we want to make sure that federal awardees are very cognizant of after a disclosure has been made. So we discussed earlier how some cases will originate with the DOJ where others will come to the attention of the IG through some other source, such as a cultural hotline or an audit report. In those cases, at some point, the IG will need to decide if there's enough evidence to refer the case to DOJ for possible civil enforcement. Adam, can you tell us a little bit more about how that decision is made? Yeah, it's similar to a decision over whether the government will intervene or decline intervention in a KETAM. And first, affirmative civil referrals, we're going to still execute investigative steps, whether that's IG subpoenas, records requests, interviews, both with internal agency contracting officers, for instance, and externally as well to get a sense of the viability of a case. 
We're going to look at, as I talked before, about the priority matrix, and we're going to determine what the potential loss is. We're going to look at legal theories. We're going to look at whether allegations, if true, were actually material to an agency's decision, for example, of whether or not to make an award. So IG will have conversations with agency counsel to make sure that we are presenting a united front as to materiality behind a potential fraud violation. And in some cases, we actually may get an early read from a U.S. attorney's office that we have had an established relationship with on whether they'd be interested in pursuing a case if certain operative facts begin to pan out. So ultimately, it's OIG Investigations' decision on when and how to present a civil referral to DOJ. But IG in-house counsel supporting investigations are always there to assess and assist with those decisions. So one of the administrative remedies that an IG will consider before closing an investigation where fraud has been uncovered, whether that case is pursued or declined by DOJ, is referral to the agency's suspension and debarment official. What are the considerations involved in determining to make a referral? So again, OIGs consider all parallel proceedings for every allegation that comes in, criminal, civil, and administrative. And as we know, suspension debarment in many cases is a corporate death knell, and companies would rather pay millions of dollars in damages than be referred for suspension debarment. So when we're assessing a case and whether it merits a present responsibility referral to an SDO, we'll look at whether the conduct at issue is in the past, say five years ago, where it still may fall under the False Claims Act statute of limitations, or is it more recent, causing a present responsibility concern over that company's continued receipt of taxpayer dollars. We'll look at whether the legal causes for suspension department could actually be used by an SDO. And in making these determinations, we definitely consider Escobar. And that Supreme Court case made it more important than ever that an agency takes action to halt problematic conduct once it becomes aware of it. And in my view, suspension department is a key indicator that a particular type of fraud is material to an agency where they've taken that measure to essentially stop the waste, stop the bleeding. So we balance this consideration with the fact that administrative records and S&D actions are made available to the targeted party. And if these records could prematurely reveal investigative decision-making or it's impossible to segregate out a piece of investigation which otherwise is confidential, then the present responsibility referral process may be delayed, but not delayed forever. Okay, so speaking of referral decisions, OIGs also must refer potential criminal violations to the Department of Justice. What's the protocol for that? So there's not necessarily a specific protocol, but like civil referrals, we'll look at a case priority matrix, We'll look at whether a case has initial merit. For criminal, of course, you have to look at whether demonstrative intent can be shown and if early investigative steps suggest that a criminal angle should be pursued. So in general, if that is the case, an IG agent will contact an AUSA, at which point the AUSA's powers, such as issuing grand jury subpoenas or signing warrants, etc., definitely can yield some important information toward assessing a case and deciding whether or not to prosecute. Great. Well, thanks, Adam. And that's all for this episode. 
We want to thank Adam for joining us today to discuss the role and the significance of the Office of Inspector General on False Claims Act investigations and litigations. If you have any questions, I can be reached at 213-443-5563 and Jason at 202-624-2562. We'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca.